This episode is brought to you by Quarter. Quarter is revolutionizing how investors listen to earnings calls and conduct due diligence. It's basically Spotify, but for investors. With Quarter, you can effortlessly search for any company and quickly gain access to their latest earnings calls, M&A announcements, and capital markets days. Plus, it's all absolutely free. Quarter constantly improves its product, and its latest update is no exception. Today, you can search for keywords like free cash flow yield or return on invested capital, and Quarter instantly indexes every company transcript that matches that key phrase. It's incredible. I'm excited to watch the Quarter team roll out more features to make my jobs as an investor even easier. And Quarter is one of the few apps I use every single day. I know you will too once you download it. So head on over to Quarter.com. Download the free app on either Android or iPhone and start using it today. That's quarter.com on the Android or iPhone store, and you'll wonder how you ever invested without it. Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created EmergingManagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org slash global dash investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot O-R-G slash global dash investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. I'm also excited to announce Tegas. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available interviews on all the public and private companies you care about. All you have to do is log in and type in a stock ticker or a keyword. For example, if you're interested in gaming stocks, you can type in RBLX for Roblox, or type in the keyword metaverse and instantly read hundreds of calls on the company and industry. Tegas actually makes primary research fun and effortless too. Instead of weeks and months, you can learn a new industry or company in hours, and all from those that know it best. Now, I only sponsor products that I use every day, and Tegas is no exception. Since joining, I spend nearly all my time reading Tegas calls on existing companies and new ideas into my portfolio, and I know you will too. So if you're interested, head on over to tegas.co forward slash value hive for a free trial to see for yourself. Again, that's tegas.co forward slash value hive. This is Dan Roller's second quarter 2022 Moran Capital Management letter. Dear partners and friends, in the second quarter of 2022, Moran Partners Fund returned negative 15.7% net of all fees and expenses, bringing our year-to-date performance to negative 25.3%. Over the past five years, the partnership has compounded at a rate of approximately 14% net. Back when I was training for Ironman triathlons, I used to ride my bike 100 to 150 miles on most Saturdays, call it 6 to 10 hours in the saddle. When the training was going well and the weather perfect and my nutrition dialed in, I might finish one of these rides strong, flying down New York's West Side Highway bike path feeling invigorated. But that is not how these rides always wrapped up. Sometimes I'd be exhausted and it might have started sleeting 
and I might have gotten a flat tire, and I might still be 15 or 20 miles from home. We used to call these days character builders. Give up and call someone for a ride home, or change a flat tire with a numb hand, take a deep breath, and get on with it. The last six months have been a character builder of a market. The cheap has gotten cheaper, and the expensive has gotten destroyed. The broader stock market, as measured by the S&P 500, just had its worst first half since 1970, falling over 20%. The Russell 2000 and NASDAQ are down even more, the latter approximately 30%. The economic backdrop is undeniably worse than it was a few quarters ago. Jamie Dimon, CEO of J.P. Morgan, summarized the environment with, in his recent earnings release. Quote, In our global economy, we are dealing with two conflicting factors operating on different timetables. The U.S. economy continues to grow and both the job market and consumer spending and their ability to spend remained healthy. But geopolitical tension, high inflation, waning consumer confidence, the uncertainty about how high rates have to go, and the never-before-seen quantitative tightening and their effects on global liquidity, combined with the war in Ukraine and its harmful effect on global energy and food prices, are very likely to have negative consequences on the global economy sometime down the road. He's generally accurate, but the negative consequences for the global economy have already started to emerge. While parts of the economy remain strong, other components have started to slow and even contract. So you may ask, given a slowing economy and potential recession, why own any stocks at all? The answer is fairly simple. Market timing is difficult to, to impossible and not a game that we are trying to play. Additionally, with a nod towards second order thinking, sentiment is terrible right now. A recession is already priced into many stocks. Drawdowns are an unfortunate but normal element of investing in stocks, and I think we can do well over time while accepting volatility along the way. Warren Buffett once said that he would rather have a lumpy 15% than a smooth 12%. But there aren't any smooth 12s if someone is trying to sell you one, run. Still, I'd rather a lumpy 15% than a lumpy 12%, and I think that my philosophy and approach and our partnership structure give us the best chance of achieving it. Given inevitable drawdowns in equity investing, how should we structure our investment approach? My answer to this question shouldn't surprise you. We should do good research and know what we own. We should care a lot about valuation in all parts of the cycle. We should concentrate into our best ideas where we have conviction while remaining humble enough to accept that we are sometimes going to get some wrong. We should seek out special situations that create asymmetric upside and provide catalysts. We should have a long time horizon and align with patient capital so we aren't forced to sell during the inevitable declines. As Jamie Dimon continued, quote, I always remind myself the economy will be a lot bigger in 10 years, close quote. More than likely, it will be bigger in just two or three years. For context, GDP was setting new highs by 2010 after the financial crisis, and the longest recession since the Great Depression have been no longer than 18 months. And as I always remind myself, there will be companies that grow and thrive during periods of broader economic contraction. We want to avoid letting price action color our analysis of companies and the world. It is critical to stay rational while the market is emotional in both directions. Markets are forward-looking, but tend to overshoot. As usual, considering our companies through the lens of outright ownership as useful, though incomplete, as a framework. Many of you reading this, LPs and others, with whom my approach resonates, are business owners yourself. You understand that businesses rarely grow in a straight line, and the paths to value creation can be nonlinear. In general, our companies are well-capitalized and do not require access to the capital markets. This creates flexibility and puts them in a position to take advantage of the environment rather than be at its mercy. 
I think we generally own companies for which we are more likely to wake up to a positive surprise than a negative one. The announcement of a smart deal, a new customer win, or a value unlocking event. I have re-underwritten our holdings, carefully checking my thesis, theses in light of the current economic backdrop. I have spent time with the management teams of many of our holdings. I've attended trade shows, capital markets days, and done checks with industry participants. During each of these touch points, I'm asking myself where and how my thesis on each holding could be wrong. I'm checking each data point as it comes in against my priors. I'm comparing management behavior to what I would be doing if I were in their shoes. For the most part, our companies are tracking to my theses, both in terms of performance and behavior. Sure, there are some new headwinds and puts and takes, but in general, I believe our portfolio companies are going to continue to compound in value through this period. The primary exception is our position in countryside partnerships, where progress on improving corporate governance and sensible decision-making has stalled. More on which below. Portfolio update. At quarter end, our top five positions were Cadre Holdings, CDRE, Claris, CLAR, Correos de Portugal, CTT, Countryside Partnerships, CSP, and PureCycle, PCYO. Net exposure is approximately 75%, with several small hedges related primarily to our European exposure. Cadre Holdings. As a reminder, Cadre primarily sells holsters, bulletproof vests, and bomb disposal suits. It has an entrenched position with many customers and is fairly recession-resistant, selling into government law enforcement budgets. The world is a dangerous place, and the pendulum is swinging back from calls to defund the police to requests to refund the police. The operating performance of the business has been strong. Management is top-notch, and the company has a large pipeline of accretic M&A opportunities in front of it. My base case thesis is that it should grow earnings by double digits organically, getting EBITDA margins to over 20% over the next few years, and then add to that growth by making smart deals. Cadre announced a secondary offering of stock in June to facilitate the exit of a private equity firm that still owns shares after Cadre's IPO, which led to weakness in the shares and contributed to our week two, our weak second quarter performance. In the long term, Cadre's outlook remains bright. We added to our position during June. Claris, C-L-A-R, quote, we believe our portfolio of superfan brands has us well positioned to continue our market momentum. Our activity-based brands have demonstrated strong resistance to recent economic headwinds, while outdoorism continues to fuel demand for the outdoor activities that we serve. As a result, we believe that we are well-positioned for another record-setting year in 2022. Close quote. That was from Claris President John Walbrick. Back to Dan. Claris has continued to perform well and beat expectations. The company will benefit from a number of tailwinds over the next year, primarily related to its recent acquisition of Rhino Rack. These include the lapping of severe flooding and strict COVID lockdowns in Australia, as well as the easing of global supply chain and logistics challenges. The euro has weakened, so the translation of European profits back to U.S. dollars has caused me to reduce my profit expectations slightly in the near term, but I am still forecasting better results than the market seems to be implying over the coming quarters and years. Smart capital allocation in this buy-and-build strategy remains an additional lever for value creation. Correos de Portugal. Quote, we see excess cash to be further enhanced with opportunities that we want to materialize still this year. The bank's strategic partnership in real estate optimization to be used in potential M&A and to reinforce shareholder remuneration with opportunistic share buyback programs. Close quote. CTT CFO Guy Pacheco. Back to Dan. CTT is our, our Iberian mail slash parcel carrier bank and real estate conglomerate. 
The stock fell 30% in the first half of the year, with most of the declines coming in May and June as funds positioned for a weakening European economy. We believe funds selling or shorting CTT on European macro fears are myopic, as the company is on the cusp of, of beginning its multi-pronged value unlocking strategy, and operating performance has continued to hold in. CTT held its first capital market day in several years last month in Lisbon. The three most important takeaways. One, the company reiterated its intention to monetize its bank. Two, the company reiterated its intention to monetize its real estate assets. And three, the company reiterated its 2022 guidance and established a long-term growth framework well above market expectations. Together, I think that the bank and real estate more than cover the entire enterprise of the company and its current stock price, roughly 400 million euros. This means investors are getting the rest of the company which, with its 50 million of EBIT after adjusting out the bank and real estate for free. Valued at 10 times EBIT, the core business might be worth three to four dollar, three to four euros per share, and I believe this value will grow over time. The company has made a number of structural improvements this year, cementing a new mail pricing contract with the government while also removing fixed costs from the business and making its cost structure more variable. So we have a stock trading at just over three euros with three plus euros of value covered by real estate and a bank that the company will begin to monetize this year and another three plus euros and growing of value covered by the core business. I believe risk reward is amply skewed in our favor. Despite a challenging operating environment, CTT is generating meaningful cash flow. And what is it doing with this excess cash? It is buying back lots of stock. The longer CTT shares remain depressed, the more value will accrue to long-term shareholders. Countryside Partnerships, CSP. CSP was a special situation investment that I thought had created an entry point into what could become a long-term holding. After three activist investors acquired over 25% of the company, CSP started to refresh its board and improve corporate governance, and it announced a strategy to change it announced a strategy change to focus on its high-return partnerships business. Signs were generally pointed in the right direction. A new board chair, an activist taking a board seat, the decision to put the legacy home-building business into runoff, and excess capital being deployed to repurchase shares. But during the second quarter, the thesis started to unravel. It became clear that the activists were not aligned with respect to strategy. One activist made an opportunistic, hostile bid for the company, essentially putting the company, quote, in play, close quote, at just about the worst time imaginable, before recent restructuring actions began to flow through the numbers, before retiring significantly more shares at cheap prices, and against a weak capital markets backdrop. Rather than ignore the bid and continue to execute and buy back shares, the company agreed to run a strategic alternatives process. The outcomes at this point are a potential sale of the business for what will likely be a disappointing price, though still likely higher than the stock is currently trading, some kind of merger or other deal that keeps the company public but changes its composition dramatically. This could help lever fixed costs and increase scale while also solving CSP's management issues, or a failed sale process and continuation on the prior path, hopefully with a new board and a concurrent large share buyback announcement using proceeds from the home building business runoff. CSP has detracted from our results by approximately 3% year-to-date. I decreased our position size following the bid for the company as it was clear my thesis had changed. The stock remains cheap, both relative to the bid it received as well as on a multi-year basis, but I believe it warrants a smaller size in the portfolio given the recent events pending further evaluation of the company's actions. Conclusion I avoid making forecasts about the near-term trajectory of the stock market, but I am excited about the current opportunity given a long time horizon. Sentiment is terrible. Many stocks are getting cheaper and cheaper. 
and our portfolio is comprised of generally off-the-beaten-path, inexpensive stocks with solid management teams and numerous catalysts. I have received some questions about dollar-cost averaging into the partnership during this period of market weakness. It is welcomed. For existing partners, we can accept additional investments in increments of $25,000. The minimum investment for new partners is $250,000, but we can accept this amount spread out over several months. Thank you for your continued trust. I continue to have the majority of my family's capital invested in the partnership alongside yours. Please don't hesitate to reach out if you have any questions about any aspect of the partnership. Sincerely, Dan Roller. This is your own Namark's one main capital second quarter 2022 letter. Dear partners, for the second quarter, one main capital partners, LP, returned negative 18.3% net of fees and expenses compared to a return of negative 16.1% and negative 17.2% for the S&P 500 and Russell 2000 indexes, respectively. For the first half, the fund returned negative 27.7% net compared to negative 20% and negative 23.4% for the S&P and Russell, respectively. In prior letters, I've highlighted that from the beginning of COVID, there was, going, there was growing speculation in markets, along with increasing willingness to use options to leverage these speculative positions. These dynamics were a tailwind to risk assets. In the first half of this year, prospects of a slowing economy, sustained inflation, and more restrictive monetary policy, including higher rates and quantitative tightening, caused investors to become more cautious, turning many of these tailwinds into headwinds. I made a conscious effort to avoid the froth, but our holdings have not been spared from the unwind, despite their reasonable valuations and relatively strong fundamental performance to this point. Though I'm always emphasizing that there will be ebbs and flows to performance, experiencing a paper loss is of course more trying than opining about one that may theoretically occur at some point in the future. With nearly my entire liquid net worth invested in the fund, I certainly feel the sting of this drawdown. Of course, stocks typically get cheap exactly when things when there are things to worry about, and right now, there is no shortage of them. In fact, the list seems to be getting longer by the day. In periods such as these, our minds try to convince us to avoid additional near-term pain by selling things until the skies are clear. However, we must remind ourselves that today's lower prices are better, not worse, for long-term investors when compared to those from the start of the year. As such, those with a time horizon measured in years rather than months are best likely served staying in the course and selectively adding exposure if prices continue heading lower. Accordingly, the discomfort of this drawdown will not cause me to change the strategy, which is to optimize for long-term growth of our capital on a risk-adjusted basis just to minimize volatility. I believe it is a fool's errand to jump in and out of the market or from sector to sector consistently without detracting from the long-term compounding effects of businesses' earnings. Instead, I continue to underwrite existing and prospective positions to account for the changing economic environment, namely using more conservative assumptions on revenue growth, margins, and multiples, and to make sure our businesses can not only survive any potential downturn, but come out of one stronger and better position than they were before it. This has led me to doubling down on some positions where I believe the market has gotten it wrong and reducing a few others where the uncertainty has made the risk reward less favorable. For example, I have doubled down on KKR, more below, and sold some names that are overly exposed to rapidly rising interest rates. As I look forward, I'm increasingly optimistic about the prospects of the fund's portfolio, and I'm excited to see how the underlying businesses we own perform in the months and years ahead. Top 5 Positions As of June 30th, the fund's top 5 positions were Alphabet Inc., G-O-O-G, Basic Fit, B-F-I-T, KKR, 
which is KKR, Pershing Square Holdings, PSH, and RCI Hospitality, Rick. Together, these holdings accounted for approximately 50% of the fund's capital. KKR, doubling down. KKR was the largest attractor to the fund's performance in the first half, costing us around 6%. It was our largest position coming into the year and is down roughly 40% through June. It also remains our largest position today, as I have used weakness in the company's share price to add meaningfully to our investment. In fact, it is approximately two times the size of our next largest holding. The only other time I've had this type of outsized position in the portfolio was with Rick in late 2019, which went on to quadruple over the next two years. KKR is an alternative asset manager that manages around $500 billion for clients. It gets paid a management fee and a share of profits on much of the capital it puts to work. Importantly, KKR is well is very well positioned within its field. For one, alternative asset managers, or alts, have been taking share from traditional strategies. On top of that, the largest of these managers have been taking share from smaller ones. Given its size, strong brand, and impressive long-term track record, KKR has been able to grow its AUM and fees at double-digit cakers for decades and should continue capitalizing on the above trends for the foreseeable future. Additionally, scaled alts such as KKR enjoy meaningful operating leverage, allowing them to earn operating margins of greater than 60% on fee revenues and 40% on performance revenues. Despite these attractive attributes, KKR and the alts more broadly are perceived as cyclical and get hit every time the prospect of an economic slowdown enters the picture. The thinking is that their underlying portfolios are leveraged, so when the market declines, their investments will be hit disproportionately, which will negatively impact performance and inevitably future fundraising. I believe that these worries are misplaced. In fact, I believe that alts are better positioned than any other asset manager to thrive through market volatility due to their long-term capital commitments, which allow them not only to hold on to investments during bad times, but also use their massive pools of dry powder to lean into accretive new opportunities as well. The liquid nature of their investments also prevents them from trying to time the market like much of active management does unsuccessfully, selling when things are scary and buying back when the skies look clear which in most cases detracts from long-term performance. In essence, the alts plant more seeds when things are scary and harvest more crops when things look great, exactly what you want stewards of your capital to be doing for you. It is for this reason that there are so many high-profile billionaires associated with alternative asset managers. Steve Schwartzman, Henry Kravis, and Dave Rubenstein are just a few of the high-profile ones. On top of ordinary cyclical worries, there is an additional worry now that higher rates will be lethal for the alts as well. The only real test we have for this thesis is the performance of private equity funds in the late 1970s through the late 1980s, when rates were double digits. For KKR, it's 1976, 1980, 1982, 1984, 1986, 1987 funds returned 17x, 5x, 4x, 6x, 14x, and 2x respectively. Sure, there may be more capital chasing deals now than back then, but there's also much more market capitalization to go after than back then. And with higher rates, all that capital will demand higher returns, so deals will be priced accordingly. While I think concerns of rising rates and a lingering economic slowdown are misplaced as it relates to the alts, I am also comforted by KKR's strong balance sheet and predictable fee-related earnings. The company holds net cash and investments representing approximately 40% of its market cap. It also has significant visibility into its management fees for the next five plus years, especially since its most significant flagship funds just completed their largest capital raises within the last year. The combination of these items provides us with significant downside protection. 
At the same time, I think KKR should be able to grow its distributable earnings, or DE, per share meaningfully in the coming years. When we first bought KKR shares, it was earning less than $2 of DE per share. This year, DE is expected to exceed $4 per share. By 2026, I believe that KKR will earn more than $10 of DE per share and will trade for a higher multiple than it does today as investors get more comfortable with the alts cycle risk. Additionally, employees and management are highly incentivized to see KKR succeed. Insiders own a lot of stock. The compensation of the company's investment team is heavily tied to fee and performance revenues. Lastly, the company's recently appointed co-CEOs were each granted 7.5 million shares of KKR, which fully invest when the stock reaches $136 per share, or 3x the current levels. They each stand to make over $1 billion if they get the stock there by 2026. I think that they will. To summarize, KKR is an extremely valuable franchise that benefits from secular tailwinds, has capable management, and generates solid earnings and cash flow. I have a tough time seeing how we lose here and can easily see us making multiples of our capital in this investment in the years to come. Staying the course. If one has a sound investment strategy, it is dangerous to change the strategy after a period of poor performance. In the words of Nassim Taleb, quote, if you must panic, panic early, close quote. Panicking late turns temporary losses into permanent ones. In the words of Howard Marks, quote, if you stand at a bus stop long enough, you'll get a bus. But if you keep running from bus stop to bus stop, you may never get a bus, close quote. Of course, this doesn't mean to stay the course and do nothing with one's portfolio. Market drawdowns tend to be associated with periods where things are rapidly changing, making it more important than ever to re-underwrite positions and to ensure our portfolio is optimized for risk-adjusted returns. However, I believe that sticking to the broader strategy that works over long periods is less risky than trying to jump in and out of the market. Outlook. The broader macro picture remains worrisome. High inflation is squeezing consumer wallets and corporate margins. Rising rates, the primary tool the Fed uses to combat inflation, continue to put downward pressure on asset values. Despite this tightening of financial conditions, we have yet to see inflation moderate. The labor market remains strong with 11 million open jobs in the U.S., the housing shortage continues to drive rents higher. Food and energy markets continue to be disrupted by the war in Ukraine. Of course, nothing is ever as good or as bad as it seems. Business conditions and consumer behavior aren't static. Neither are the decisions of policymakers, employees, or management teams. High prices and high interest rates lead to demand destruction, which we, already, which we are already starting to see in U.S. gasoline demand. Because of the dynamic nature of the economy, it is very hard to predict how things will play out. And because markets are forward-looking and have already priced in a fair amount of pessimism, it is even harder to predict how stock prices will respond to the economic data as it changes. To continue owning risk assets, however, investors must believe that the Fed govern governors have zero appetite to repeat the mistakes made by their predecessors in the early 1970s, and will do whatever it takes to squash inflation, even if it means pushing the economy into a recession. A recession may be bad for corporate earnings in the near term, but corporate earnings will eventually recover, and the lack of sustained inflation is a key ingredient needed to support longer-term multiples. At the same time, the much more rapid deflation of bubble assets, such as meme stocks, high-flying story stocks, and crypto, has been healthy in my opinion and has the potential to slow demand in a good way, while the job market remains in solid shape, a possible soft landing. For the fund, I will continue to try to own the best collection of businesses that can outgrow inflation in any environment, trading at reasonable valuations with strong balance sheets and competent slash aligned management. I'm confident that this recipe will yield success with time. As always, thank you for your continued support and confidence. Please reach out with any questions at yarun at 
onemaincapital.com. Sincerely, your own Neymark. This is Steel City Capital LP's second quarter 2022 letter. Dear partners and friends, Steel City Capital LP declined 11.2% in the second quarter of 2022, net of fees and expenses. Following flat performance in the first quarter of the year, the year-to-date decline in the partnership matches our performance in the second quarter. Throughout the first half of the year, market trading was dominated by inflation-related concerns, rising rates, and a growing drumbeat of chatter about a looming recession. But since mid-June, the market has changed course. With the tech-heavy Nasdaq rallying as much as 19.5% off its lows, putting the index on the precipice of a technical bull market, the more recent day-to-day volatility reflects confusion surrounding the macro environment and the related path of interest rates. Have rates reached a, quote, neutral, close quote, level, as Chairman Powell recently suggested? Is the rates market correct that the Fed will soon pause the pace of increases and ultimately begin cutting next year? Has inflation peaked? Will this lead to a 1970s-style policy error? Are commodity prices retreating for good, or do we have longer-term structural issues to deal with? Are we currently in a recession, despite the fact that the country added 528,000 jobs last month? The list goes on and on. In recent days, meme stocks and the long list of other unprofitable growth companies have rallied, causing discomfort, perhaps PTSD, for those of us who hold short positions in such companies. While there are myriad examples, two of our long-held and perennially painful short positions illustrate this phenomenon well. Let's start with Trupanion, ticker symbol T-R-U-P. The second quarter print and guide was a proverbial dumpster fire. The company's net loss expanded year over year, which was attributed to, one, a return of claim frequency to pre-pandemic levels, and two, a recent acceleration in claim severity, or the cost per claim covered. Management tried to spin the inflationary nature of claim expenses in a positive light, but under no circumstance should an insurance company be bragging about increasing frequency and severity. This is literally the exact opposite of what the company should want to see. Along with the treatment of stock-based compensation, this is another area where Buffett fanboy Daryl Rawlings apparently has views that diverge with the Oracle. Alongside these trends, management revised down guidance for adjusted operating income growth from 25% to a range of 15 to 20%. One would expect an unprofitable insurance company trading at, at nearly nine times price to book to be down significantly on the news, but shares are essentially flat compared to pre-release levels. Carvana shares are up more than 100% from recent lows. The quarter was predictably poor. Retail unit growth slowed to roughly 9% year over year, and the company generated negative EBITDA of $230 million. What Bull saw in the report was growth in per-unit gross profit, GPU, and a reduction in per-unit SG&A, which they interpreted as an inflection in the business and a sign that the march to profitability has resumed in earnest. I think they're getting high on their own supply. While there may be some continued improvement in the, quote, metal margin, close quote, component of GPU, all important finance GPU is unlikely to return to 2020 or 2021 levels in the absence of the ABS securitization market heating up again. At the same time, bulls have latched on to the company's so-called stretch goal of SGNA reaching $4,000 per unit by the fourth quarter of the year. Let me start by pointing out something that is being grossly mischaracterized. This stretch goal is being conflated with guidance. It is absolutely not guidance. 
I view stretch goal as a sort of squishy term management can use to offer some hope for the future while simultaneously protecting themselves for getting su- from getting sued if and when they don't hit this goal. More importantly, I think there is a not, there is a near zero probability that the company comes anywhere close to this level of SG&A per unit. Notwithstanding all of the hype about cost cutting, like for like cash SG&A, X Adessa and one-time restructuring expenses, dropped from $690 million in Q1 to $640 million in Q2, a reduction of roughly 7%. Laudable, but nowhere near the levels required to reach the stretch goal. The challenge is that Carvana has pulled in its horns with respect to retail unit volume growth in order to preserve liquidity. But the path to SG&A of $4,000 per unit requires a reacceleration of unit growth in order to leverage fixed costs. This is a case of, quote, the trend is not your friend, close quote, with alternative data points indicating unit volumes declined sequentially in each month since March. And with the pending $1 billion reduction of the company's floor plan facility by the end of September, the type of unit increases required to hit the target look increasingly unlikely. What if there's still fat to trim? Perhaps it's plausible, but I think bulls need to be more intellectually honest about what would need to happen for Carvana to achieve its stretch goal. Let's say the company successfully reduces like-for-like cash SG&A to $575 million, reflecting a 10% decline from second quarter. Carvana would need to sell an all-time high 143,750 retail units in Q4 2022, reflecting a reacceleration of year-over-year growth to roughly 27%. I am not holding my breath. And lastly, what happens if Carvana doesn't hit its SG&A targets? I estimate that the company will burn through the vast majority of its available cash by the end of the year, setting it up for a liquidity event in the early, in early 2023. There's a reason a majority of Carvana's bonds trade at distressed levels. Bulls are whistling past the grave. Our short position in Service Corp International, SCI, began to bear fruit when the company reported two Q results, and I think there continues to be room for the shares to fall further. At the company's analyst day in May, management articulated long-term financial targets that included earnings per share growth of 8 to 12%, inclusive of 5 to 7% from organic activity, and another 3 to 5% from inorganic activity. There are lots of moving variables associated with the outlook, but ultimately, reaching the goal is predicated upon continued strong growth in pre-need cemetery sales, which have favorable revenue recognition conditions. My view is that the recent boom in pre-need activity was a function of 1, a consumer flush with cash and wealth effect driven spending with markets at all-time highs, and two, elevated awareness driven by COVID mortality, and that sooner or later, the attractiveness of prepaying $10,000 for a cemetery plot that you, hopefully, won't need for many years would become less attractive. When the company reported 2Q results, pre-need growth unexpectedly rolled over. As investors come to term with the fact that SCI is unlikely to deliver on its long-term guidance, shares should continue to retreat. Equitrans Midstream Corp. is a new long position for the partnership. ETRN is the former midstream arm of Marcellus Natural Gas Producer EQT. They own gathering assets, small diameter pipelines that directly connect to the wellhead, and long-haul transportation assets, larger diameter pipelines that move gas over long distances, usually under take-or-pay contracts. The company formerly separated from EQT via spinoff in late 2018. At the time, the capital structure was pretty complicated. There was a collection of three, yes, three publicly traded currencies that held various ownership interests in the core assets. 
but this was simplified in a combination of asset swaps over the years so that there's now only one publicly traded vehicle, ETRN. The stock has been a poor performer since its separation due to missed financial targets and increasing debt levels, both owing to the company's struggle to complete the Mountain Valley pipeline. The MVP is intended to provide much-needed takeaway capacity from the Appalachia Basin to markets in the U.S. southeast where, they, where there is growing gas demand for power generation, as well as the Gulf Coast, for eventual export. The project has been an utter disaster for the company because of continued opposition from the environmentalist community. Originally targeted to come online in late 2018 at a total cost of $3.5 billion, today we're looking at a best-case scenario of mid-2023 at a total cost of $6.2 billion. In support of the expanding price tag, ETRN has had to take on increasing amounts of debt. At the same time, the company has pulled the rug out from under dividend-oriented investors, first in the form of revised guidance for no growth versus 8 to 12% at the time of separation, and second in the form of a backdoor dividend cut. It's sort of easy to see why investors have been sour on the stock. The partnership began acquiring shares in late June, early July, when ETRN was trading around $6. As a general matter, I disdain using discounted cash flow for valuation purposes, as it's a silly exercise that involves a lot of bullshit guessing about the future. But there are exceptions to every rule, and ETRN is one of them. This is a business that is fairly simple to model. Certain volumes are contractually set. Non-contractual volumes should continue flowing even in a depressed natural gas price environment, and today's price environment is anything but weak. And prices for volumes are known variables, again, with a significant portion being contractually set. The way I went about modeling the business was as follows. First, there is a core or base business that will generate cash flows independent of MVP being placed into service. Second, there is a set of contingent cash flows that will be generated in the event of MVP being placed into service. Applying a 10% discount rate to expected free cash flows from the base business yielded a price in the low to mid $6 range. So at our purchase price, I felt comfortable that, they, that we were able to lock in an attractive return with limited downside. At this level, we also became owners of an option on potential upside from the contingent cash flow stream. At the time, I estimated up, my estimated upside from this cash flow stream would be worth anywhere from $3.5 to $4.00. Of course, the option is worth less than that because of the probability tree associated with MVP. But at $6 per share, we were getting this option for free. Who doesn't like a free option? Since initially establishing a position, there has been a major development with respect to the prospects of MVP. In exchange for his support of the proposed Inflation Reduction Act, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin secured commitments from congressional leadership and the president to support a bill that would, among other things, clear a path for MVP to be completed. As it stands today, the market appears to be pricing in roughly 50-50 odds of completion, but I think the probability is much higher. What could go wrong? The biggest risk to completion is no longer judicial, but political. The path forward for the legislation would, that would support MVP's completion is a side agreement to the reconciliation bill. This means it can't pass without a simple majority, and instead needs a filibuster-proof 60-plus votes. Republicans are a tad salty about the Democrats' recent legislative successes, and I wouldn't put it outside the realm of possibilities that they thwart the legislation out of pure spite. Time will tell, but given our purchase price, I think it's highly unlikely that we end up losing money on our position, even in the event of a worst-case scenario. Unit Corp. UNTC. Unit Corp. is another new long for the partnership. UNTC is a diversified energy company with three segments. One, exploration and production two contract rigs, and three midstream. I stumbled onto the company on my own, but I've come to realize it is somewhat 
popular among the FinTwit community. This actually has me a tad on guard as I've been burned by groupthink and unbridled enthusiasm that often accompanies this type of popularity. Yes, we once owned Gaia, and no, I'm not proud of it. At the end of the day, I'm attracted to UNTC because of what I perceive to be a fairly large margin of safety at our purchase price. Similar to ETRN, it's hard to see how we lose money on this investment. The company has no debt and is currently sitting on $161 million of cash. Subject to, to commodity pricing, I think the company should reasonably generate another $70 million through the end of the year. On top of this, UNTC owns 14 super spec rigs that are fully utilized. The best bogey available for the rig's valuation is last year's acquisition of Pioneer Energy by Patterson UTI, which valued similar rigs at 13 to 14 million each. This implies the rig business is conservatively is conservatively worth 140 to 150 million dollars. Against a market cap of 590 million, 140 million is covered by rigs and another 230 million will be covered by cash by year end. Depending on production and price assumptions for 2023, the ENP assets trade at an implied multiple between 1 and 2 times cash flow. Management has telegraphed the potential for increased capital returns going forward, which I certainly wouldn't argue with, but I'd also like to see the company reinvest in production growth potentially even selling the rig operations to support more drilling, which would train, which would change the dynamic of the valuation. It's one thing to be a low multiple EMP operator in runoff mode. It's completely different to be a low multiple EMP operator with, with production growth coming down the pike. At Anterix, ATEX, another quarter of nothing to report on the contract front. If you would have told me three years ago, ATEX's share price would be virtually unchanged from our entry point despite receiving everything you wanted from the SEC and signing three contracts and unveiling lofty financial targets, I wouldn't have believed you. Observers have suggested that it's time to cut bait and begin fishing elsewhere. The challenge with this investment thesis at this juncture is that it's going to take more than just one to two additional contracts to drive the shares materially higher, unless these contracts are massive. This is valid perspective, so why maintain a position? Two reasons. First, I continue to believe in the industrial logic and demand underlying the spectrum the company has on offer. Second, the investment continues to include a significant margin of safety, which as articulated above with respect to ETRN and UNTC is clearly important to me. ATEX has a market cap of roughly $850 million. Against this, the company has letters of intent, I know these aren't contracts, totaling $450 million and is contractually entitled to another $50 million of proceeds from deals that have already been inked. The remaining stub substantially undervalues what the company is likely to realize from additional Spectrum sales. No, we haven't yet made the type of money that I expected when initially entering the position, but I think it's a relatively low probability outcome that we see our capital permanently impaired. And I continue to believe that there is a relatively high probability that our five-year IRR will be quite satisfactory. I know these updates are long, but I believe it is vitally important for partners and prospective partners to understand my thought process and rationale for making investments. I'm available for any questions, comments, or concerns that you may have. If you're an accredited investor and would like to learn more about becoming a partner, please reach out to me and we can arrange a time to have a more in-depth conversation. Please also know that even if an investment in the partnership isn't good for you, the highest compliment that you can pay me is an introduction to someone who might be a good fit. I want to thank you those of you who have already joined as partners of the fund, I'm grateful for the opportunity to grow your assets alongside mine and appreciate your trust. This is Andrew Rosenblum's Bonsai Partners Q2 2022 letter. Dear investor, for the three months ended June 30th, 2022, Bonsai Partners Fund LP declined negative 17.3% net of fees and expenses. 
the S&P 500 total return index declined negative 16.1% over this same period. Year-to-date returns are presented below. And it looks like year-to-date returns for Bonsai net is negative 32%. And since inception, he has annualized 158.7% returns. Or I'm sorry, annualized 29.4% uh, net returns, which is just mind-boggling. Anyways, back to the letter. So much has changed over the past six months. Today, we face war in Eastern Europe, heightened geopolitical tensions, significant inflation, rising interest rates, and signs of waning customer demand. While the economic landscape has changed, know that our core tenets remain the same. Current events may cause us to recalibrate from time to time, but I do not see a need for us to dramatically change course. Our objective remains the same. Investing companies highly likely to earn significantly more revenues, profits, and competitive advantages three, five, or ten years from now. If we can align ourselves to those opportunities, the right business models, the right leaders, the right company cultures, and the right prices, we will do well over time, over the only time horizon that matters, the long term. Although the last 18 months presented significant challenges, our returns since inception are a reminder that our strategy can deliver attractive long-term results despite periods of underperformance. Ho Nam at Altos Ventures once said that he imagines his investments are like metal springs. When stock prices fall, these springs compress, storing potential energy waiting to be released. Our portfolio today is filled with potential energy, and the recent volatility offers us a richer set of opportunities to build our portfolio. I remain excited about our future. Our objective remains the same as it was before this correction. We will stay invested, partner with the right businesses, and not overpay. We will continue executing the plan until our core tenants no longer work. I do not see evidence that this is the case today. Our companies will endure, and our core operating principles remain intact. Objectives for 2022 In 2022, our core objectives remain the same since the start of the year. One, hunt for and add attractive ideas to the portfolio. Two, simplify our operation and improve our operational infrastructure. Three, invest in our processes to improve the work we repeatedly do, both from an operational and investment perspective. On this second point, during the quarter, we selected Pillar Fund Services to provide outsourced CFO services to the Bonsai Partners Fund. We are currently integrating workflows with PFS and see this engagement as an important step in the development of our fund's infrastructure. Portfolio Review During the second quarter, we purchased two new positions, Expel and Wise. We also sold the remainder of our modest LKQ position. I outline our Expel thesis in the pages below and expect to share our Wise thesis in our third quarter letter. I want to take a moment now to discuss our significantly reduced Redbubble position. How did Redbubble shift from such a large position at the end of 2020 to a modest one today? Further, why trim the position when Redbubble stock is roughly back to our original purchase price in 2019, given the company is now significantly larger and arguably better positioned? It is remarkable how different the outlook for e-commerce is today relative to the end of 2020. At that time, Redbubble enjoyed rapid growth, expanding profitability, and a peak valuation of roughly 20 times trailing EBITDA. For a company with a great business model and a long runway ahead, this struck me as attractive. The critical question then was whether e-commerce demand permanently pulled forward five years or if this was, or if this was just a temporary bump. If the growth trajectory remained intact, Redbubble was cheap, and if it was not, Redbubble was expensive. I believed the former, and we experienced the latter. I was incorrect to believe that e-commerce demand pulled forward, and we have since seen e-commerce return to its historical trend line as other parts of the economy reopened. 
This shift caused Redbubble and most of the e-commerce landscape to go from cheap to overvalued in a heartbeat. Although I was bullish in late 2020 on e-commerce, I still decided to dramatically reduce our Redbubble exposure to improve the balance of ideas within our portfolio. In hindsight, this proved to be a wise choice. However, more important than changes in macroeconomic trends, multiple other factors changed related to Redbubble. I've changed. The facts underlying the Redbubble thesis changed. And the opportunity set also changed. Over the past three years, I've improved as an investor in ways I couldn't have imagined when I first invested in Redbubble. While three years may not sound like a long time, trust me, those were dog years. As we improve, our investment criteria and portfolio also improve. While Redbubble is a good business and our thesis played out in some ways, it did not work out as well as others. When I first invested in 2019, a core part of the investment thesis revolved around the company's ability to raise customer repeat purchase rates through improved systems and new product innovation. By cracking this piece of the puzzle, Redbubble would grow faster and more predictably than the historical trend while also adding resiliency in case of challenging operating environments. Fast forward to today, and unfortunately, the company made limited progress against this goal. This development is disappointing, and it offers a reminder of the importance of holding management accountable for their execution. I allowed, quote, thesis creep, close quote, to get the better of me. In addition, a new risk factor emerged as we studied the company. I was surprised to learn about a degree of legal risk hidden under the surface related to intellectual property infringement on their site. Redbubble is a digital platform, and as a platform, if members of the community upload infringing artwork, the company is shielded from liability due to the safe harbor provision within Section 512 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. However, as the winds of change swirl around the laws that regulate the platform economy, it seems possible, if not likely, that the protections that Redbubble historically enjoyed may not protect them against future claims. While I believe Redbubble can invest in systems and people to police their marketplace and eliminate this liability, management has not done enough. This has been an area of frustration despite my engagement on this issue. Redbubble at these prices offers an attractive IRR as their underlying opportunity remains significant and the competitive advantages I observed when I first invested remain intact. However, weak execution and emerging legal risks led me to reduce our position size further than just the goal of attaining better balance within the portfolio. I continue to monitor the company in hopes that they execute against these underlying areas. Such changes would allow me to consider a larger Redbubble position again in the future. Finally, while Redbubble offers an attractive IRR, the opportunity set around us has dramatically improved. When we purchased Redbubble from 2019 through March 2020, Redbubble was the most compelling opportunity I could find. Today, Redbubble faces other competitive uses of our capital. While I believe Redbubble has the potential to be an excellent long-term investment, for the reasons mentioned, I have increasingly deployed our capital into other ideas. And speaking of other ideas, new investment, Expel. Expel Overview. Expel is a provider of high-performance automotive and architectural films. Expel's films protect painted automotive surfaces as well as add tint to automotive and architectural windows. Paint protection film, or PPF, represents a majority of Expel's sales. Expel's end customers buy paint protection film to protect their cars from chips and scuffs caused by rocks and other debris. Rather than paint a car's front end multiple times over its life, PPF offers an invisible layer of protection that absorbs these impacts to ensure a vehicle looks like new. Although customer awareness of PPF is still relatively low, the PPF market rapidly expanded over the past five years due to improved product performance and customer adoption reaching a tipping point. 
Anyone who takes pride in the appearance of their vehicle is a potential customer of PPF. While protection film initially gained traction in the high-end cars, today some of Expel's most common installations include mass-market models such as Toyota Corolla and Ford F-150. Consumers who want to apply PPF to their vehicles typically purchase the product through an independent film installer. Installers are required for this product because PPF installation is a labor-intensive process and the application is highly technical. The variability of different car models makes defect-free installation a challenge for even the most experienced film installers. Expel views its network of installers as its customer base since they are the direct buyers of the Expel products. In addition to its line of films and coatings, Expel also sells to installers its software and database of film patterns, known as their Design Access Program, or DAP. The DAP offers installers the most extensive library of automotive patterns with over 80,000 designs. This system allows a film installer to precisely print film cutouts that match the precise size and shape of most vehicle makes, models, and years. The DAP, pro, or the DAP offers Expel a significant advantage over its PPF com competition, which includes Eastman Chemical through its Lumar and SunTech brands and 3M. Expel software is a key reason the company enjoys a leading position with installers. Expel earns money in three ways. First, by selling films and coatings to its network of installers, roughly 84% of revenue. Second, by collecting software access fees and cut bank credits, roughly 6% of revenue. And, and third, by offering installation services directly through its own self or its self-owned installation centers, which is roughly 10% of revenue. Finally, Expel developed a robust growth playbook to execute against, which includes one, authorizing more Expel authorized dealers to open in North America. Two, introducing new product lines and increasing product utilization across their installer base. Three, expanding their presence outside of North America. Four, moving further upstream to sell their products through automotive OEMs. And five, acquiring existing installation shops or opening new Expel branded installation centers. Expel growth, Expel's growth runway remains significant as customer adoption of PPF remains in its early days. What makes Expel an enduring business? While Expel primarily makes money from selling performance films, do not be fooled. The property of Expel's films are not their core differentiator. I view Expel's success in film as a byproduct of something else entirely, its ability to create the most valuable ecosystem for film installers. While Expel's performance films are market-leading products, comparing Expel's films to competing products misses the bigger picture. While Expel and Apple are not comparable, I don't think one gains a good sense of Apple's com competitive advantage just by comparing the Apple's technical specifications against those of competing Android devices. I'm sorry, comparing iPhone technical specifications against competing Android devices. The value of the iPhone lies inside Apple's ecosystem, and Apple monetizes its ecosystem through smartphone sales and high-margin App Store royalties. Expel operates similar similarly. They monetize their ecosystem through performance film sales and high-margin cut bank credits. Expel's ecosystem value originates from the company's leadership in three areas. Marketing, brand awareness with end consumers, distribution, high-touch service to installers, and software, their proprietary library of designs. Expel's lead in marketing, distribution, and software allow the company to funnel the most high-value film jobs to its network of installers while also increasing the amount of profit its installers earn per job through technology and white-glove service. By driving the most value to installers than anyone else, more installers want to work exclusively with Expel, driving film and software sales back to the company. Let's discuss, 
let's discuss each of Expel's three differentiators in turn. On the marketing side, Expel built the cognitive referent within PPF industries. Put differently, what Kleenex is to tissues, Expel is to paint protection film. Customers who want paint protection don't often don't know the term paint protection film at all. Instead, when they visit a film installer, they often ask installers to expel their car, regardless of the brand the installer is affiliated with. While Expel's products is an indistinguishable, invisible film, the company did a remarkable job building an aspirational brand for auto enthusiasts. Expel accomplished this by partnering with leading car brands, race clubs, and auto enthusiast groups. These organizations likely weren't interested in partnering with stodgy brands like Eastman Chemical or 3M, allowing Expel to step in and become the aspirational product for protecting one's vehicle. By building the market-leading brand, more customers search for Expel branded products and affiliated installers than any other. This makes Expel's dealer locator tool quite valuable. More film installers want to work exclusively with Expel due to their control of access to the customer from multiple angles. From a distribution perspective, Expel built a high-performance service organization. Rather than extract as much value as possible from its installers, Expel is service-focused, offering high in-stock availability, products delivered quickly, a leading warranty, and a direct line to resolve issues fast. Expel would rather eat the cost of a problem installation than squeeze their installers for everything they are worth. This level of service helps installers service more cars in any given month while also delivering peace of mind that Expel has their back. I discuss the importance of this attribute in more detail in the following section. Finally, Expel software is essential to installers because they are forced to cut film by hand without it. This process of bulk cutting creates significantly more film waste. Paint protection film is expensive. Waste installer time, decreases human error, and the installer might damage the vehicle underneath. Expel's DAP software linked with a film printer ensures consistent film shapes, faster application times, and repeatable results due to their library of vetted designs that installers grow to trust. As mentioned earlier, Expel holds a clear advantage in its direct access program library. The company stands out in this area because Expel didn't start as a film company. Instead, Expel began as a software company and only later in its life expanded outward to sell its own brand of film and other products. While Expel engineers each of its own products, they outsource virtually all of its manufacturing to third parties. And due to their software focus, Expel's library of patterns is the most extensive and accurate. This is difficult to replicate. While their well-capitalized competitors have tried, their design libraries are incomplete and inaccurate. It takes a significant investment to create designs for each new vehicle model and trim while also curating a catalog of historical models spanning decades. Expel's competitors have too many other business lines to devote the resource necessary to compete in this niche industry effectively. From our research, Expel's competitors admit that after spending millions of dollars building new versions of their software, Expel is still at least a decade ahead. Finally, since Expel also runs some of its own installation shops, it can test new patterns and software features before releasing them to others. This arrangement allows Expel to iterate faster while avoiding installer frustration. In summary, by driving more leads to installers and offering a more efficient system to service those leads, PPF dealers earn the most money when they choose to partner with Expel. As a result, Expel's installer base is incredibly loyal and often ecstatic to join the Expel network when offered. Importantly, the system creates a quasi-franchise business model for Expel. They're not just a film supplier, but they earn film and software royalties on the customer leads they pass through to their installers. I cannot overstate the importance of controlling distribution in the PPF industry. I explain this dynamic further in the section below. The friendly installer. 
Under the right conditions, the seller of a product is the critical point of an industry's value chain. I find this occurs in infrequently purchased high-value products. In these specific cases, customers tend to rely on expert opinions to avoid buyer's remorse. This dynamic creates a favorable environment for sellers since they hold considerable sway over which product the customer ultimately buys. For example, an orthodontist not only installs braces, but also acts as a salesperson that guides the patient to pick the right orthodontic system for them. By acting as a subject matter expert and salesperson simultaneously, customers rely heavily on the orthodontist's opinion, giving the dentist significant control over which products are purchased. In the case of paint protection film, this dynamic also exists for film installers. A car owner is making a significant investment in their vehicle, often thousands of dollars, and to the naked eye, each film is indistinguishable. Customers want to know from the installer which product will best protect their automobile over its life. Film installers, therefore, exert significant influence over which film brand and SKUs are sold. By cornering the PPF industry's installer base through the means it mentioned above, installers recommend Expo products more than any other. While installers are highly interested in end customer satisfaction, they do not have perfect alignment of incentives. To the installer, the best product is not just the film with the highest quality at the lowest price. Instead, installers also consider a product's commercial attributes. Is the product the easiest and fastest to install? Is the product always in stock? Can I get the product delivered quickly? Will the company replace the product for free if something goes wrong? Etc. On these attributes, the scale tips heavily in Expel's favor. Expel isn't just growing quickly because it has some of the best performing films, they do, but also because it offers the best platform for an installer to make money running an autofilm business. Building deep alignment with installers gives Expel control over the industry. Expel has a long waitlist of installers clamoring to become an exclusive Expel distributor, and this scarcity creates a sense of pride for those chosen to join the network. If Expel continues to deliver the most value to installers through its software, marketing, and distribution layers, its control over the fast-growing PPF industry will remain intact. Conclusion. Expel controls two customer choke points. They have the market-leading brand, and they maintain control over distribution. By cornering these channels of the PPF market, Expel outfoxed its better-capitalized competition and now leads this fast-growing and attractive industry. I believe the arrangement they created with installers is enduring, and they will be able to execute their growth playbook for many years. Closing thoughts. Thank you again for choosing this partnership. I'm continually amazed by our collection of long-term thinkers. While I've never written in our letters that, quote, now is the time, now is a good time to invest in the fund, close quote, I believe that times like these offer opportunities to lean into the volatility as our portfolio grows increasingly attractive. As I said last quarter, I appreciate your calm patience during these challenging months. If you have any questions or comments, don't hesitate to contact me directly. Andrew Rosenblum. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive.